Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, a podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and as always, I will be your host today. But our guest, our guest is the real special sauce because our guest is Andrew Holiday, CEO and founder of Special Sauce Branding. Andrew is a marketing leader with experience building campaigns for companies as large as Wendy's and as niche and focused as True Temper Golf. Andrew's real focus and specialty is about how to tell stories to the right people in the right places. Something that he's learned to do well in his own right as the founder of multiple marketing agencies like Special Sauce Branding and as a constant experimenter. And the skills that Andrew has and the lessons that he tries to put across about how to tell the right story and the right words to the right people in the right ways is the entire challenge of early stage sales. And that's why I am going to keep this introduction short because Andrew's stories and ideas speak for themselves. So please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Holiday. Andrew Holiday, my friend, welcome to the gong. Ah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. Um, I so we're going to talk a whole lot about marketing because that's something that you spent fifteen years fifteen years doing quite well uh, for many companies, small and large. But I want to start somewhere else. I want to start with negotiation, uh, and specifically, I would love to hear the story of how you began leading negotiation for contracts for uh, top North American athletes? <laughs> well, the honest answer is dumb luck. Um, <laughs> I'd love to give you a fantastic story of how I really deserved it, but it, it was being in the right place at the right time uh, is really the honest truth. The, the agency that I worked for was out of a tiny little town in Arkansas called Jonesboro. And somehow... Um, the founder of the agency it was called Sotox. He had convinced some of the best cyclists and triathletes in the world um, to let him represent them. And I had a random, one of my older brothers um, actually had a mutual connection. It was right after I had come out of college and he was looking for someone that really fit me to a T, kind of fit the description of, of who I am to a T. So I went over and every morning I would get up and drive an hour from Memphis over to the tiny little town, Jonesboro, Arkansas, and, and work for some of the best athletes in the world who were spread all over the world uh, from, from this tiny little town in Arkansas. What do you think? So you said that they were looking for somebody specifically like you. What was it about you that they were looking for? So uh, honestly, a big part of it was – ambition and drive and uh, I didn't have fear to tackle things that I didn't know at the time so those were really the the, the pieces that that played in my favor uh, I didn't mind jumping in and learning on the fly I didn't mind you know I was talking to some of the most you know honestly some of the most powerful people in cycling and uh, in, in the the world of endurance sports uh, some pretty prominent business figures um, but I didn't let that phase me. Uh, so the, the guy that founded it, a guy named Clay Young, uh, one of the things I learned from him was, you know, 
jump in and even if you're unsure, at least, you know, present yourself as confident. <laughs> it's not fake it till you make it. It's more, you know, just be, you know, firm and confident and, and learn as you go. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Cause I, I find that that happened to me very, very often. You know, if you're a college kid starting a company or if you are in your early or mid twenties and you are leading sales or marketing and you're negotiating against people who are in their fifties and are executives at fortune 500s, uh, it is very easy to be very afraid or to cringe or to recognize that the power dynamic is not in your favor. Um, and I've been in that situation a lot. Uh, so I would love to hear how you as a young guy doing some of the largest negotiations for an industry as old and powerful uh, as cycling, especially in the early 2000s, I guess Lance was still going strong um, yeah. in, in that time. How did you think about being the young guy surrounded by all these seemingly older, more sophisticated, wealthier, more powerful people? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a couple things. You want, don't pretend that you do know everything because you don't, but don't be afraid to really be aggressive and learn on the fly. You know, I tried to pick up a lot of, and I did learn a lot that it's really funny that that job so long ago uh, transpired and it actually resulted in where I live today. You know, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I never would have known about Boulder had I not worked there. Um, it actually is where I found and met my uh, co-founder of Harvest, which is the agency I founded. I left Sotox. And there's so many different parallels to how that job <laughs> ended up playing out in the rest of my life. It's kind of funny. And, you know, one of the big things I learned from, from Clay, the founder of that, was, you know, be aggressive and, and have a desire to learn and, and go out there and don't be afraid to talk to anyone, you know, stand, you know, even if you're learning, even if you're still on the way up, your passion and your hunger are things that a lot of the people that are further along and have been doing this for a long time can't match. Uh, and I've used that repeatedly as an advantage in my companies. Yeah. What were the, some of the conversations that you found yourself having the negotiations you found yourself in uh, when you were negotiating on behalf of these contracts, what do those conversations look like? So a lot of our pools kind of give you a little bit of the basis is a lot of the people that we were working with are, were professional cyclists and for professional cyclists, you have different types of riders and then, and just in cycling in general, it's somewhat like a team sport because you have to negotiate their primary rider contract and then a part of our job is also going out and finding sponsors, uh, sponsorships for them and negotiating their sponsorship agreements. So those are two drastically different things, but both of them share a little bit. And, and actually, I say that's where my marketing career really started. I got an advertising degree, yes, but really my marketing career started uh, when I was negotiating those contracts. Uh, they actually, it's, as funny as it sounds, contract negotiation is a lot like you know, when you're negotiating, for instance, a primary rider contract, so the team, like you mentioned, Lance Armstrong, uh, we represented several people that rode on the same team as Lance, um, one of them being kind of the, the largest, uh, I would say, American cyclist at the time outside of Lance, a guy named George Coffey. And <clears throat> when we're negotiating those contracts, kind of like in marketing, you're trying to figure out is what can I give them to make them feel like they're winning. You know, that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, trying to figure out, okay, great. 
you know, here's what the other side really wants and here's what I really need. What can I, what can I give up to get the things that I really want? And then the other aspect of it, again, like marketing is, you know, how can I create a sense of urgency? You know, what do I really have that, that makes them want to act? So, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but there are different types of riders. You know, there's the domestique, there's a sprinter, there's your stage race, uh, your, your climber. Well, looking at the team that they've already signed, do I have one of those? Do I have a super domestique that they absolutely need? I'm talking about with the team with Lance is, do I have a super domestique that's going to complete the team and help Lance go out and win the tour, you know, which was their primary goal every year? Yeah, I'd love to understand better. I think the point you made is so, so accurate, where when you're negotiating against somebody, especially when it seems like the power dynamic is is off, which is pretty much always the case when a young startup or a young person is negotiating against a large company or an older individual. Um, there's two things that you mentioned that I like. The first is coming in with confidence, but not arrogance. Uh, you know, being able to draw the line in the sand, but having it be thought through in advance and having it be somehow advantageous to both sides. But I think even more importantly is recognizing that what you want is different than what they want. So perhaps what all, all that you want is a really big check. To them, there's obviously a lot more than the loss of money that they're thinking about. They're thinking about whether you know, you're negotiating the contract, whether they're getting the right kind of rider, or when you're doing this on behalf of your marketing agency, if they're going to have a better a better website or more sales or the right marketing agency later on. What kind of questions do you like to ask uh, prospects or clients or people on the other side of the negotiating table to begin to understand what it is that's important to them? And so you're not working off of as many assumptions, but you're working off of what they're telling you. And uh, if it helps, maybe a, a specific story of a negotiation may, may drive that point home. Well, it's kind of funny. I'll, I'll actually go back to that original job with, with Sotox. And one of the, the, the other type of contract that we negotiated was sponsorship contracts. And with a sponsorship contract, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to you know, find out what that business is trying to achieve with the sponsorship. You know, what's their larger goal? And how is sponsoring my athlete going to move them toward that goal? So, you know, for let's say Red Bull, you know, when I was negotiating a contract with Red Bull um, at the time, they didn't have triathletes and they're considering moving into triathlon. We represented the, the uh, only American to win Ironman triathlon in a very long time. And he was the two time reigning Ironman world champion. So we had a very valuable asset that would have, that helps them, you know, immediately grant, gain credibility inside of the triathlon market and move toward that goal of breaking into basically an entirely new sport for them. Um, this was still fairly early in the, uh, in the Red Bull athlete sponsorship days. Um, that's no different than the approach I take with businesses now. You know, um, really, I, you know, yes, technically I'm in branding and marketing, but a lot of the value I end up bringing for clients is helping them align their business, their brand, and their marketing. So before I can do anything with their brand or their marketing, I have to understand their business. You know, I've got to understand what is the big, hairy goal that you're trying to achieve with your business. And, okay, here's how we're going to use your brand and your marketing to help you get to that goal. Uh, and I would say the same thing with any startup. You know, I talk to a lot of startups about this. You know, don't think about you, you, you. Think about your customer. 
you know, it's what are they trying to do and how are my expertise going to move them closer to that? You know, my product, my expertise, my service, you know, how is it going to move the, the ideal people closer to that? So when you work on the business side of things, uh, what, uh, what, obviously the answer that your prospects or your clients are giving you and you ask them what's important in your business, there's more than just, we want to have a lot more sales. What are some of the categories of answers that people give you of what's important to their business? And then how might you respond uh, or what kind of different services might you provide? I'm also, I'm trying to get after perhaps how a, a startup or a small company might begin to understand how to set different goals for themselves outside of just, we want to grow top line revenue because there's, there's things much more important than that. Absolutely. So I, I use a pretty simple, so my process starts with an intake, I call it an executive alignment survey. And I send it out. I intentionally don't have a meeting to start things or do things face to face because meetings and face to face is going to be dominated by the most, um, or the loudest voice in the room typically. And if you do it via survey, you get a lot of fantastic feedback. And part of that survey and that executive alignment process is I ask them to tell me, let's say, so it's December 18th, 2019 today. I always go two years exactly out of the future. Say, pretend that it's December 18th, uh, 2021. What is the, you know, your ideal picture of, you know, what, what's the, um, use my company for example what's the special sauce you want to exist you know tell me your sales tell me how large your team is tell me you know exactly who your customers are and i have them break it down very precisely and what this does is it allows me to see a is everyone in this company aligned you know do are they walking in the same direction because if they're not this is a fundamental issue and i would highly encourage all startups to do this, do it independently, don't do it in the same room, go fill out your vision for where you want to take the company, come back, compare it and make sure you're all going in the same direction. Once you've got that, you can work backwards. You can say, okay, what are all this, you know, who are the, what are the positions that we need to create? I mean, this even goes back to the E-Myth, you know, that book, you know, where he has you uh, write out the the positions that, that you need filled. Even if you're a one person organization at the time, to get to your eventual goal, you create job descriptions for all of those those positions that you need eventually. So you'll know exactly how to fill them. You know, and then say, okay, we want to get to X number of sales. Well, what type of marketing are we going to use? And let's build the systems that take us there. So by laying it out, and, and I find that two years is the perfect number. Two years, you're not too far into the future where it just seems intangible and, and unreal. And two years is far enough out that you're not caught up in the immediate fires. You can think about, okay, two years is that, that, that perfect happy medium where I can think about exactly where I want to be. Yeah. Two years feels, even for a company that's two years old, two years feels like a semi manageable timeline to somehow imagine. Exactly. And, and so you, uh, I, I want to understand better how you, started your first marketing firm so harvest you had spent a couple of years negotiating in sports but then you went into to start your own marketing agency so can you tell me about the first uh say six months of what it was like running harvest yeah absolutely so my business partner for harvest actually he he was a designer and he was doing some design work for a couple of the athletes at sotox and he and I started collaborating through that. We got to be friends. 
and we were both hungry to start our own thing and give a run at an agency. So we partnered up. <laughs> we went out, locked down a space. It was actually in an old tile shop, um, which turned out to be a huge mistake. Uh, it was looked really cool because there were different kinds of tile all throughout the office. Um, the unfortunate part was every time we answered the phone, it, it sounded like we were in a warehouse or a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to constantly have people who were like, uh, are, you, are you in the bathroom uh, or a warehouse somewhere? I think they uh, call that uh, negative externalities is the scientific yeah. phrase for what you were dealing with. Yeah, exactly. So kind of funny, but uh, you know, we partnered up and everything started with us. We, I think we had one small publication that we laid out and then we leveraged every personal contact that we had to just go out and try to get results for people. You know, so when you say you had one, one publication that you laid out, what, what does that mean? So it was a personal contact from my business partner at the time. So he was a designer. Um, somebody came to him and said, Hey, will you lay out this publication for us? You know, I, I need a designer to lay this publication out for us. It was a monthly magazine. And we, we were at that point, we were like, yes, absolutely. You know, we need the revenues. So we were laying out this monthly publication simultaneously. I was leveraging every kind of personal contact that I had and spreading the word. And, and honestly, we won a lot of our early business just from straight hustle. You know, I think there were a couple of times where we stayed up 24 hours straight to deliver on uh, on a project that nobody else would take on. Uh, but we were hungry enough that we would do it. So and we did whatever it took at that point to, to deliver. And that eventually led to what I would call kind of our first big win, which is a company called NCBS. Uh, they're no longer around. It was a division of SunTrust. Uh, they, they were actually the company that invented the in-store bank. So when you go in like a Walmart or any other grocery store and you see a bank in the front, they were the company that invented that. And that was really our, our first big win. And, and that, that is another one of those really turning points because that relationship opened a lot of doors intentionally and unintentionally kind of funny that led all the way through to us landing Walmart and Wendy's and some other uh, in Coke and doing some work with some really large companies that we would have never imagined out of the gate. That first publication that you guys are working on and then evolving into uh, that bank, how did your pricing change? I mean, I, I imagine because I've been through that numerous times that, I mean, I, I actually, I did some, some, uh, side podcasting work for an organization in North Carolina. And I remember the first time we did some work, it was a friend and I, and we had just graduated college and they said, how much do you want to make? And I was like, Oh man, I don't know, like maybe $2,000. And after all the time that we put in together, I think it ended up being like eight bucks an hour. <laughs> and then, and then we do, right. and then we do yeah. our second season and we go like, Lisa, man, like I, this was a lot of fun, but like, we're going to have to up our rate to at least $2,500. And she's like, no, 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 like you're going to have to take the full five grand. And we didn't even know that it was a possibility to ask for $5,000. <laughs> it felt like we hit El Dorado. And then I think we did even more work so that our salary maybe ended up going up to like nine fifty an hour. Uh, but, <laughs> but so I've been in that situation where uh, when you're starting something new, especially in the services industry, but products have this as well, uh, it is very easy to undervalue yourself. And sometimes 
getting to the higher pricing comes from a customer like it did from us. They just said, listen, like you're going to need to <laughs> up your salaries here to do better work for us. And then sometimes probably when folks are more experienced, it comes directly from, from the, the company, the startup, the, the small marketing agency setting the pricing. So how much did you guys charge if you remember what order of magnitude for your first publication that you did? And how did that change by the time you got to the bank? I don't remember what we charge for that publication, uh, to be honest with you, out of the gate. But I can absolutely tell you that pricing, the way how much we charged, how we charged, all of that was a constantly evolving <laughs> story, I would say, uh, as our agency grew. You know, we definitely tested out different pricing methodologies from pricing hourly to pricing um, by project to retainer to you know, all different forms and fashions of pricing. And, you know, we had to earn higher pricing. Uh, we couldn't come out of the gate and command a huge premium. We, we didn't, we had not done anything to justify that uh, at that point. So we did the best we could to figure out what a market rate was and, and keep ourselves in there. We definitely didn't go in. And, and the one thing I can, I will recommend to anyone is, don't go in and lowball to win a job because you will never be valued. Um, you'll be commoditized. And, you know, there's two pieces of advice I have for people. Uh, if you are in the client business, one, don't charge hourly. Figure out how to productize your service and deliver a result, not hours. Um, if you work for hours, eventually they're going to try to find somebody that'll do it uh, for cheaper per hour. Uh, and, and honestly, it, when you deliver an hourly bill, there's always surprises. No matter what you think, you know, both sides are thinking like, oh, wow, I gave them a great deal. I knocked off a couple hours and the person receiving it's like, wait, this is more hours than I thought. <laughs> and they're completely caught up in how much they're paying per hour instead of that fantastic end result that you are trying to get. Them. You know, so if you do a project based pricing and you can productize your, your service significantly better for, for your business, you know, Number one, you can become more efficient. You aren't penalized for working quicker, so you aren't paid less. Um, it's easier to scale and, and take and grow, and plus your clients will be happier. You know, at least in my experience, I, I have always seen that hourly relationships end well, and that's something we had to learn. I mean, don't end well, excuse me, uh, but that's something we had to learn over time. You know, and it just took a lot of projects, and, and then as far as how much we charged, that was ever evolving. You know, that uh, we had to earn charging more. And as we started becoming more and more experienced, we started having higher demand. We naturally rose our prices. Uh, what kind of advice would you give somebody, or actually, let me put it this way. You started a new agency uh, fairly recently. How did mm -hmm. you approach pricing the second time around? doing this starting starting a new agency yeah so you one of the things i i realized is that i want to be able to deliver results and i have a pretty structured process that anyone that works with me when they start i don't care if it's a big company or a startup it's a it's a solo solopreneur i don't care what you are is when you come in the door you're going to go through my brand recipe sprint and it's a month-long sprint it, you have set pricing and everyone goes through that. Everyone's going to go through that process. I'm going to deliver them a tangible result at the end of that process. 
that they can take and utilize <laughs> and execute to grow. <clears throat> or uh, what ends up happening a lot of times is that leads to the next step and the next portion kind of bucket of services that I offer, which is the creative development. So getting into the actual branding. So helping with their copywriting, building out their visual identity, those components. And then that a lot of times will lead to the next step, which is laying out their marketing execution. I call it, basically I call it a product funnel um, where you just steadily progress people through your products. Um, the brand recipe sprints, it's great. It's, um, it's kind of like a hook product in the sense that it's not, you know, I, I'm, obviously it's a pretty decent sized investment, but it's not so substantial that it's going to keep people from coming in. I get to know if I like working with them. They get to know if they like working with me and, and to see if it's the right, you know, if we're the right fit to take that next step together. How do you, how do you approach differentiating amongst all these different folks who are looking at your website and many others? I mean, I'm sure special sauce is fantastic. And the fact that Andrew holiday is a name uh, that's worked with big clients is great. And you've been in the industry for 15 years. There's a lot of really smart marketers. There's a lot of really good agencies. And there's a lot of people who can really help out many different businesses that come up to them. So what do you do when you – a two-part question. Partially, this is what kind of clients are you going after? Because uh, I know from a lot of your writing, and I, I want to spend the next few minutes talking about this, but not everybody in the world who needs marketing is a target client of special sauce. Just yeah. like not everybody in the world who needs – Delivery is a target customer of Udell, my, uh, my self-driving car company where I lead sales. But so what kind of customers are you going after? How do you decide that? But also, what do you do to stand out amongst a reasonably crowded marketplace of, of companies and individuals offering marketing services? Yeah, it's, you know, a few different pieces to that answer. Uh, number one is that the kind of company I'm looking for is somebody that's good at what they do. They have a proven product, but they're not good at, at letting people know and landing customers. Uh, that's the really easy way to say it because the value I bring and what really makes me different than a lot of the other people is, I, you know, I don't, if you're just looking for a logo, I'm not a great fit. You know, if you're just looking for, um, just looking for some copywriting, copywriting help, I'm probably not the right fit. You know, Cole's a great, you know, Cole Schaefer. I think you've talked to him on your podcast before, you know, he's a great fit for copywriting. I'm a better fit when a company needs to line their business, their brand, and their marketing. They need to figure out how to make all of those pieces fit together to attract more customers. That's the kind of fit. And, you know, that's really the unique value that I bring to the table. You know, I'll give you a, an example. A client that, uh, that I currently work with is they came to me. And, and originally, this is how a lot of my um, initial inquiries, right? Hey, we, we'd like some help with our marketing. Well, when I get in and I start talking to them and I take them through that executive alignment process, I was able to, um, it, the, the company I'm referring to right now is the company was called Pennington and Bales. And they've been around for a pretty long time. They're established. They sell collegiately licensed uh, products, you know, shirt apparel, basically. And, but I went through and I looked at their product sales, and which is one of the things that I do. And I identified that hey, you're selling well over a hundred SKUs, but it's these five basically that are generating 90% of your sales. Why are we selling all of this other stuff? So taking that and they were like, you know, you're right. We, we, we kind of just needed somebody outside to tell us that, but you're right. 
So we took that information, we rebranded them from Pennington and Bales to Fan Pants. So renamed the company. We totally refreshed their identity, launched them into uh, a much you know, kind of more playful and much more lighthearted than the very preppy, I would say somewhat stiff uh, kind of brand they had before. So it better fit the collegiate market. And then we rebuilt their website, which they were on Magento. It wasn't a good fit for them. We moved them over to Shopify, able to cut like $40,000 of overhead just from moving their website and trimming their product portfolio down and, and have totally relaunched and revitalized their business. Um, you, there were several other aspects that we did in that process, but I'll, I'll, I'll save you. I won't make you listen to all of it, but that's a prime example of really the value that I'm able to bring to the table. I've had a pretty good amount of experience with a lot of different companies and I can be that perspective that they need to say, okay, here's your business goals. Like I said, I always try to lay out their business goals. You know, here's what we need to do from a brand and a marketing perspective to get you to those goals. Yeah. So, so you really know what it is that you're offering and you now your job and you do this on, on your site. And I recommend people look there because this is all the stuff you say, maybe on a sales call or on a podcast or at a conference, <laughs> but then that's also written for people to find quite succinctly uh, on, on your site. But then what about the opposite side of this? So you had this, uh, you had this fun post on LinkedIn about business, business lessons to be learned from the karate kid. <laughs> and, and, and there, there are many wax on wax off and the whole thing. But yeah. the, the one that really struck me because it's, it's a huge part of early stage marketing. It's perhaps everything about early stage sales success is focus on the right audience. Can you, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you try to target, you know, if you try to speak to everyone, you speak to no one. You know, that's the really the sim simplest explanation of it. In the Karate Kid article, I jokingly referred to, you know, uh, compared Daniel didn't need to win over everyone at the school. You know, I, the Cobra Kai <laughs> uh, basically were the popular kids. Everyone in school loved them. So, but so Daniel didn't try to go after everyone. He just went after Allie. You know, that was the smallest viable audience that he needed to be happy and to be successful. And so by focusing completely on Allie and presenting her something different than the kind of the uh, no mercy mentality, uh, he was able to resonate with her and speak to exactly what she wanted. And marketing is the exact same way. You know, you if you try to speak to everyone, your message isn't going to resonate. So figuring out, go small, start small. You can always, almost every great brand in history started with a really niche small audience and then spread from there and i encourage everyone to to utilize that same strategy start small and you know as far as kind of the path on how to do it is figure out your engine you know i i and i say your engine is you know are you a good writer are you great on video uh do you are you fantastic with podcasts you know decide what your engine's going to be base it on where your strengths lie and kind of where they meet your audience's attention and, and consumption habits and go all in on that, on that channel, basically, you know, go all in on that engine and then produce content, but pick your medium and deliver value and, you know, do it for a small audience and be consistent. Keep showing up. That's really the, the biggest key. You know, for any company that wants to grow, I don't care if you're a fortune 500 company or a startup, you know, having 
consistency so that people can build consumption habits around your marketing is absolute key to success. Um, I, I wish I had learned this lesson 15 years ago. Um, I didn't start writing until I launched Special Sauce, to be honest with you. And it's been fantastic for my business. You know, when you mix in repeat business referrals and then the constant leads that I'm now driving from the various forms of writing that I do, it's been, to be honest with you, it's been great. And I, I really kicked myself for not starting it 15 years earlier. Yeah, for, for the, uh, the few uninitiated amongst us, who uh, the sad souls who have not seen the Karate Kid, and we're talking the original one, not, not Jackie Chan and, and uh, Jaden yeah. Smith, but the, the original Karate Kid, uh, maybe if, can you give an example of how this works well um, with a real business? So you, you've written about a couple. We'll love an example of a company that is well known that started small, that went niche. And that grew off that and how you, from a marketing perspective, have tracked that. Yeah, I mean, uh, one easy example is like a soul cycle. You know, they started with a single location, very niche focused on, uh, you know, a female consumer that in, in, a, in New York. And that was it. And so all they had to do was win that, you know, that female consumer in New York that had their specific parameters. And now they've exploded and, you know, there's a soul cycle everywhere that you go. They've been, uh, they were bought out by what Equinox, uh, you know, and you talk about just mass spread, you know, Apple is another example, you know, at, when Apple first launched, it was an incredibly niche product. You know, they weren't going after everyone. Uh, they were going after a very niche crowd. And then now you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that didn't know Apple. I, I would use Nike actually as well. You know, Nike uh, if you haven't read it, you should go read Shoe Dog. It's great. Nike started very specifically for runners. And, you know, it, running wasn't even what it is today. Running was a very small, just little um, peripheral thing when Nike started. And they focused completely on winning over runners. And then they started to spread into what Nike is today. And, you know, it wasn't even Nike when they started. They were called Blue Ribbon Sports. They were selling Tigers. Uh, it wasn't even their made product. But what they did is, to be honest with you, a lot of Nike's success is attributed to the fact that they knew their market. They knew runners, and they were serving them better than anyone else. And they built uh, now an internationally known brand based solely on the fact that they became the best at knowing exactly what runners wanted. And they, they almost created that industry. Now, what kind of pushback might you hear? Because if you give an example, like Apple started by selling only to designers. That's it. They wanted Macintoshes on the, on the desks of people who do design and who need the mouse and who need the keyboard, need that great experience with the Mac. And then bit by bit, they expanded. Or another great one is Facebook, right? Facebook started only with high school – oh, sorry, only with Harvard students and then only with Ivy League students and then only with college students and then eventually only with high schoolers far years and years and years before they ever expanded outside of schools generally. And you give that example, but still literally every single CEO of all time will say, yes, but my company is different. Yeah. Yes, but my company can sell to everybody. What, how do you kind of guide that? How would you guide that conversation with somebody who tells you, totally get it, Andrew, it worked for Facebook and Apple, but here's why our thing is different. Yeah, I, 
I, I then go to one of my clients, you know, I'll use a very small company. I say, okay, great. If looking at the large companies is it's too hard for you to picture, I use some of the clients that I work with now. I have a company that's in basically it's vacuum coating industry and they have a fantastic product. They're probably the best in the industry at what they do, but they lack, they completely lack focus on, uh, on who their customer was. You know, they were willing to basically code for anyone just by stepping in and helping them to find, here's our niche. Here's who we're going after. Here's who we're going to win. It's completely revolutionized their business. Now we put out content that resonates with the people uh, that they're trying to reach. We're getting coverage in different publications because they're speaking specifically to what these publications want and need. They're, they're drawing in uh, basically inbound traffic, which had never happened before, um, all because they found their niche and they're focusing completely on that. And what they're also starting to see is by speaking specifically to that niche, they actually get interest from some of these other people, uh, which is a funny effect. Uh, I've seen it with a couple of my different clients. By saying, going in and, and really going all in and committing to a specific market, a lot of times in, in getting to know who your niche is, it, it will resonate with some people that are even kind of on the peripheral of that niche, and it'll start to draw them in. And that's what happened with all of the really large companies. That's how they eventually got to be really large. They spoke to their core market. They got in. And at the end of the day, really what it is, is it's, it's not about marketing. It's about knowing who you're trying to reach and you're trying to solve a problem for uh, and building a fantastic product. Because at the end of the day, you, you can only sell a piece of shit once. And that's why I say when, when I go out and I look at clients, I say, do you have a legitimate product or service that I think I can truly help? You know, because they have to have a legitimate product or service. I, I'm at a point in my career where I don't, I tried to help people where their product wasn't there, their server was, service wasn't great. Um, and, and there's nothing I can do. Like I said, if, if the product or service doesn't deliver, you know, there's really not much I can do. I can get somebody to come in the door once, but that's all they're going to come in. And you can't live off of always having, you know, one-time customers or one-time clients. Yeah, there's, there's a line I heard. I previously interviewed the CEO of McKinney, one of the largest ad agencies in the country. And he told me that nothing kills a bad product like great advertising. <laughs> That's a great quote. You'll, you'll, sell a, you'll sell a million units really quickly and then they'll all be returned immediately. And yeah. never, never purchased again. Yeah, you know, it's that people are only going to buy something that doesn't deliver once and you really just can't build a you can't build sustainable marketing and you can't build sustainable businesses on top of a poor product or a poor service. So, you know, number one is and I always that's why I take people through what I call the you know, it's a brand script process. It's, you know, really simple. You know, my customer is you know, they struggle with. I help them buy the one thing that makes me different is, you know, that's, it's a really simple. I know that seems really um, easy and simple, but it's amazingly, it's amazing how hard that actually is to complete. And, you know, I would say most businesses really struggle to simplify that down, but that becomes the core framework for, for everything I do with companies. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a really, really important point and a great note uh, to wrap up this section on, but Andrew, I want to skip to a few rapid fire questions. 
uh, some of which will be a little bit lighter, some of which I think will build upon this. You ready? Sure. Uh, first question, uh, are there any sales or marketing or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you? Yeah, I tell you, my favorite book of this year, and it's one of the best books, it's not directly related to sales or startups or marketing, but Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think it is a fantastic read, and I think it's a, a principle that every business and every marketer should take to heart. Uh, I, I actually think it's one of the most practical books I've read in a long time. I, I would put it as my number one of the year for sure. Uh, it's it's amazing how it walks you through uh, basically the the development of habits and the compound interest effect that everything can have. Um, you know, when you combine that with a uh, <clears throat> a book like The One Thing and a couple of the others that are out there, uh, you know, there's a lot of powerful principles in there. Yeah, uh, Atomic Habits I haven't read yet, but I did just put it in my basket. The one that that reminds me of is The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg that was written maybe five or six years ago. Uh, also sounds like a similar context and that was a pretty impactful book. So I'm sure this one is just as good. Um, second question, what do you think of the Tesla Cybertruck? <laughs> uh, well, so I, it's actually funny. I put out an article recently. It's funny that you asked me this because I think that I think it's misunderstood in a lot of ways. So I actually think the, the Cybertruck is brilliant. You know, Tesla could have gone out there and they, they could have put out just an actual truck truck, you know, something that competes uh, with other trucks. But instead, what Elon Musk did is he went out and created a category of one. You know, this is, you know, it's not just a truck, it's the cyber truck. And that is completely different. And I don't think he's trying to appeal to the Ford drivers of the world. I think he's trying to appeal to cyber truck drivers. And he's giving them something completely different. And based on the volume of people that have pre-ordered, I'd say he's on to something. Uh, and I also wouldn't doubt it. You know, a, you know, he started a company called The Boring Company, and it's done pretty well. You know, he's launched rockets into space and been able to land them on a pad, uh, which had not been done before, and make money doing it. Uh, you know, he has outsold, I think, BMW and Mercedes in the U.S. You know, with an electric vehicle. You know, I at this point, I'm I have a hard time doubting Elon Musk. I know he can fly off the handle and he does some crazy stuff, but at the same time, the the guy has a knack for creating his own category that he then goes and dominates. Yeah, that's right. And I think he's beginning to use that as leverage in his product making, almost like. Yeah. Uh, it's just almost hero worship now that anything Elon does is untouchable and it must be perfect because Elon did it. So even if the <laughs> cyber, so perhaps that, that comes out of it, but Hey, no, no judgments here. I'll, I'll take a cyber truck. Why not? Um, yeah, I know a lot of people hate it and I'm not saying I personally like it, but I think it's a brilliant decision on their part not to go out. They could have done something like Rivian and, and you know, a Ford and those are all just variations of the same thing. You know, great. You're a Ford driver, you're a Chevy driver. But what he did is he created something that's completely different. You know, it's for a very different person. He's not trying to sell to the Ford or the Chevy or the Ram driver. He's trying to find cyber truck drivers. He wants that group of people and he's creating basically an entirely new category. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? 
man, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, you know, Wendy's would be one of them. Uh, it was just because it was a testament to persistence. Uh, it's really kind of funny and it's a long drawn out story of how we got there. But I would say just how hard we worked to land that, how persistent we were to land the Wendy's work and everything that went into landing that would be, I would say, one of, and the work that we did, I, I think it was, it's probably some of the most visible work I've done in my career. So all of those factors, I would say probably Wendy's. Awesome. I bet that was, that was a lot of, felt really good. <laughs> yeah. What has been your best failure or in other words, a failure that has later led to unexpected success? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I, well, it's not really a failure, but my transition from harvest to special sauce, you know, so I sold harvest to my business partner last year and um, you know, that was really hard to leave behind. You know, that was, that had been 13 years of my life building an agency. Um, but we came to the point where, you know, basically my business partner and all of our employees were in Memphis and I was having to go and spend a week out of every month back in Memphis. And I, I would just, it was burning me out. It was tough on our team. And in, it was a, actually a very amicable split between my business partner and I, but making that transition away from harvest and, and going to special sauce where I, I do have a little bit of a different focus. Um, I've been able to really revitalize myself. Like I said, I started writing, which I didn't even realize how much I would enjoy writing and how much clarity it brings you. But, you know, it, it, it got me started on writing. I've been able to really st structure differently who I go after. So instead of going after big clients first, like we did with Harvest, and that was the majority of our uh, our work, and then we would work with a few small to medium-sized companies, I really prioritize the small to medium-sized companies now because I see my work making a difference. What I'm doing, it, it really can change the fate of these, of these companies, you know, and I can help them really create a better future for their company. And I see what I'm doing have a dramatic effect. So I didn't see it at the time and there was a lot of hassle. You know, it was a really difficult decision breaking away from Harvest. I mean, I love the Harvest team. I love my co-founder, so very good friend of mine. I had worked on building that company for 13 years to, to you know, to move on from that and start something different was, it was like hitting the reset button. And it turned out to be the best thing I've ever done because it's totally revitalized me and kind of giving me a fresh new lease on what I'll call my, my life and my work life. Yeah. Making decisions. I thank you for sharing. I empathize so hard, uh, leaving something that you're very proud of, even on good terms, maybe especially on good terms can be very difficult. Um, but out of, you know, out of the ashes comes a Phoenix, uh, sort of thing. And it's very exciting to see what you are working on here with special sauce. Um, Andrew, this has been a absolute blast. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Find out what you are up to or what you're writing about. Absolutely. Uh, SpecialSauceBranding.com is the easiest spot to find me. Uh, I am pretty consistent on my site. I send out a, an email every single Friday. That is absolutely my favorite thing. It's called The Recipe. Uh, you can find it on my site. 
if you are into entrepreneurship, marketing, or branding, then you may dig it. <laughs> if you're not, then you probably won't. Uh, but <clears throat> those are the that's probably the best spots uh, to stick up with me. Um, I'm also pretty active on Medium. I've started writing on Medium a good bit, uh, and it's just at Andrew Holiday on Medium. So those would be the the three spots to find me. Yeah, I would add the caveat for Medium that I was enjoying your writing so much that I actually went over my monthly limit of articles and Medium tried to get me to subscribe. So they almost got me, but it was it was your article's fault that I went over. Oh, well, I appreciate that. That's uh, very generous <laughs> of you. And, and if I recommend one thing, I, I've gotten sucked into the Medium world. I, I do very much enjoy it. it it's been interesting seeing their path. So. Uh, I highly recommend it to anyone that's not involved in Medium or hasn't been there in a long time. Yeah, they've really changed quite a bit. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you have it. Andrew Holiday, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn more about Andrew, check out his LinkedIn where he writes a ton of posts or visit specialsaucebranding.com to see Andrew's magic at work. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review and a rating or find me all over the interwebs at alubarski2. Until next time, happy selling.